Aga keva, aga ki odoni, fkemini hamar. Okay, and now here we are at the fourth annual True Orwell Prize. Um, very, very difficult to define this category this year because, like, it used to be, it used to be the category for like left wingers, Labour MPs, progressive liberals, whatever. But I mean, as liberal liberalism falls into just reaction, <laughs> basically, <laughs> I, I guess we have to go with like cultural poise, <laughs> social positioning. What what defines this now? Yeah. Um, well, we, so see, you, we talked in an earlier pod about how um, Julian Morgan is the last, liv- last living liberal. Yeah, I mean, he's not on this this year. Um, well, no, he doesn't deserve to be on it this year, even though he started yeah, this year, or was it, or was it ended last year? We ended the year before strong with, you know, killing that fox. But he's been very good recently. Yeah, he did. He won Funniest Moment last year, didn't he? Well, yeah, of course, I think he probably did, because uh, yeah. that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> it wasn't just killing a fox either. It was killing a fox in his wife's kimono. It's just everything about it. It's just art. It's just ridiculous. And then, yeah, he's become the last proper liberal. So, mm. weird. So, to start off, we have Michael Chesham. Okay. You may remember him. Uh, he is the Corbynite from, who headed the uh, Another Europe is Possible group. Oh, the pro, the the pro EU kind mm-hmm. of group within the Labour Party um, that really got very agro EU. Yeah. Um, during during the the refer- let's call them the referendum years, the Brexit years. Yeah. Um, so he spent the last year, twenty twenty, just talking about how the Labour position on Brexit was a fudge, and if they had done, just done what he wanted, which they did, mm-hmm. uh, then they would have won the election. But if they'd done it sooner, they would have definitely won it. Well, yeah, he's very invested in that strain of thinking that if only Labour had got the Brexit position right, which mm-hmm. for him was the full second referendum, mm-hmm. um, that they would have done it. And, you know, they did that, but it wasn't enough, and mm-hmm. that they were triangulated and saying that, well, Labour is obviously completely a Remain party, therefore we should have just done what democracy wanted and done what the members wanted, despite, you know, numerous fucking polls about the fact that Labour members were Remain but didn't actually want a second referendum. Yeah. Um, So he said in October, um, I'm afraid that large chunks of the Corbynite left adopted precisely the logic and instincts of new Labour. He states loudly and confidently. (laughs) And their approach to Brexit is just a symptom of that. It's pretty simple. The leadership and its loyalists went wholesale into a strategy of wholesale centrist triangulation on the subject rather than fighting for a position of principle. They fought for your position of principle. Yeah. They only included the referendum in there because you wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. Yeah, and we never should um, have. <laughs> he continues, they therefore had to manage the party rather than allow members to democratically decide. Oh. Hmm, would this be the party that included until quite late Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson? <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? And, yeah. you know, Tony Blair and literally every other fucking um, Remain guy. He got what he wanted, and, like, it wasn't the only reason, but, like, it's... uh, Let's just say that a Tory party who said, let's get Brexit done and nothing else, prevailed (laughs) over let's have some more Brexit talk. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, it's just, like, that that is one of the reasons. I've no doubt. That's the fucking main reason, you know it. If uh, if people were making principled stands against fucking racism, then Boris Johnson wouldn't have been fucking leader. 
And I mean, look, he's not. I, I, I sympathise. I don't particularly think it's true, but I sympathise with the idea that late Corbynism started to triangulate mm-hmm. yeah. more than was necessary. Border cops, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's stuff like abolishing the monarchy when he was asked that question. And he's like, well, we're not going to do it, which, yeah. you know, absolutely fine. It's not a position I agree with, but it's not really a deal breaker. I, I get it. Yeah. But. You can tell, like, no, I will say, I say, I'll say these things. But this wasn't in a vacuum. This wasn't him just deciding to mm-hmm. do it. It was because they literally every three months would take him into a room and berate Corbyn. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were constantly leaking to the press. They were constantly leaking to the other side. They like they didn't have a position of principle. Yeah. Because at various points it was you have to cooperate with the good Tories. At other points was I can't believe you're voting on the same side as the Tories <laughs> and then not voting for a people's vote. People's people's vote MPs didn't vote for a people's vote when it was up. Mm-hmm. They voted against the amendment. So, I don't know what the fuck you want. Um one final thing, yeah, like uh one final strand to Michael Chesham's year mm-hmm. has been um this. After Len McCluskey gave an interview saying that he never opposed Theresa May's deal, that he could see the slow car crash that was coming for Labour if we didn't get Brexit out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um Michael Chesham replies, This is honest and illuminating. It is simply impossible to understand Corbyn's Brexit positioning without noting that sections of the top brass were not only Lexiters, but in favour of Theresa May's Brexit deal. They never had the courage to argue for that strategy at the time. And it's just like, it's that classic Corbyn's cabinet was a secret cabal of Lexiters. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody said said this in response to him is like, do you prefer, you know, like the status quo? Is it better now at the time? We were were on the edge of no deal and Labour have returned to centre-right policy. Was that essentially saying, was that worth your Brexit position? And Michael Chesham says that wasn't the choice. There were lots of other outcomes that could have happened if we had done things differently and it might well have happened. And it's like, those choices were, look, promise to abolish Brexit, avoid the referendum with no public vote, or do what Corbyn's Labour did, which was to offer a vote with a specific Remain option. They yeah. offered it. They got hammered. Yeah. They got hammered at the polls and rhetorically by everybody. Yeah. Like, to say that you didn't get the thing that you wanted when you specifically did, Yeah. and then to say that actually there were lots of other outcomes. It's like, yeah, but outcomes are formed by things that you do. And these were things that the Remain group as a whole was some of the fit was one of the options that they were considering that they, that they pushed for. And when he did it, yeah. he got nothing but shit for it. Mm-hmm. So fucking secret cabal of Lexiters. It's so secret that, you know, and they love Theresa May's deal so much that they decided to offer a referendum and got painted as metropolitan Remainers yeah. like you, mm-hmm. you know, fuck off. Mm. Um, next we have hmm, Stephen Bush, oh. new statesman journalist, um, and recently, this year, got appointed to chair the Board of Deputies of British Jews Commission on Racial Inclusivity within the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's had a turn this year. Like, originally, like, people get the wrong idea about his trajectory, and I've seen other people correct this as well. This isn't, mm-hmm. like, original thought. Stephen Bush has always been, like, a journalist, like, a technical, a technically-minded journalist. Okay. Like, he's, which means he's a liberal. Yeah. He's a he's a maybe a right wing liberal sometimes or a left liberal other times, but he's generally straight down the line. He's never really changed his politics. What people liked about Stephen Bush was that not that he was necessarily supportive of Corbyn, but that mm-hmm. he treated him like uh, an actual thing. He treated yeah. him like the leader of the opposition. Yeah, What's which that? was very Bush rare. Yeah, like Bush seemed to have an actual curiosity about mm-hmm. what was happening. Yeah, he wasn't content just to go. This is an aberration. 
the left were so battered by bad faith takes that I think that it was genuinely refreshing. And that's why people kind of, they, they wouldn't be as hard on him yeah. as uh, some others. And I would say that this is probably the year that this turned. Um, Stephen Bush has published a number of articles this year um, talking about Corbyn's self-evident anti-Semitism. And I'm not going to say that it cohered with getting his Board of Deputies appointment, but it, he did describe in uh, the Times of Israel blog, which he writes, described Corbyn as the Capone of anti-Semitism. Ooh. As in Al Capone. Yeah. yeah. Um, quote, Corbyn condemned himself back in 2012 when he was faced with the sight of a mural that was so virulently anti and obviously anti-Semitic, <sighs> citation needed on that one, it would not have looked out of place in a sitcom about a hapless buffoon who accidentally commissions an expensive work of art only to find it is visibly and transparently racist. I would say citation needed on that virulently and obviously anti-Semitic. Like, I think you could read that into it, and it's got a lot of those very subtle anti-Semitic hippie tropes yeah. that you have sometimes, the New World Order, Illuminati. It yeah. goes along with the crowd. But I wouldn't say it was obvious. I think you'd have to interpret it that doesn't mean to say that i'm excusing anything in it but everything needs that level of interpretation otherwise you don't you don't have a thing such as tropes mm -hmm. without actual interpretation yeah um and also aside from anything that's not how it was received in the first few days yeah. of that thing happening back in to when it came out in like 2016 was it yeah. 17 um we had a chat me and you had a chat mm. about do you think this is anti-semitic and at first i was like no, not really. It looks like stupid fucking hippie art. Mm, yeah. Um, and then you look at it and it's like, look, it does have some elements of the design of the figures that, if not intentionally anti-Semitic, echo from anti-Semitic yeah. anti tropes, right? That's that's where we go. Not talking about the mural. But like, um, he, Stephen Bush went on in that article to say, those 18 words um, that Corbyn wrote about the mural are more damning than any of the 35,000-odd words in the EHRC's report that Corbyn was either unable to recognise an obviously anti-Semitic piece of artwork when he stared it in the face, or that he agreed with its content made him an unsuitable candidate to be Prime Minister. What I find amazing is that I looked back through Stephen Bush's work. Obviously, the New Statesman is paywalled, so mm -hmm. um, it's not like I'm going to go back and look through. But I'm going on memory here, and I might be wrong. Yeah. I don't remember Stephen Bush saying that while Corbyn was actually leader of the opposition. And I find it amazing, given the uh, his moral revulsion yeah. at Corbyn's inherent anti-Semitism, that he was able to stand reporting on him, writing book reviews uh, about books about him, yeah. that he could report on it without really mentioning it at all, because it doesn't well, particularly come up. Here's the thing. If it's such a revolting, obviously anti-Semitic mural that destroyed Corbyn the minute he wrote those 18 words... Why wasn't mm. this talked about in 2012 then when he did it? Do you Why mean, was it talked about in 2015? If it was such big when he leader, yeah. yeah. If it was such big news, this this horrendously racist mural that was put up on a wall, why wasn't it anywhere until yeah. like he'd been leader for a couple of years? Yeah, it's not just in his published work either. Um there's been he's he's really gotten quite combative mm. on on Twitter. Um with, um, like, saying, you know, like, uh, Corbyn appearing at events next to um, Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. um, there was... A, the conference was called From Auschwitz to Gaza. Yeah. Another one. Bear in mind, no... Um, no comment on its content, on what 
it was actually about how it planned to link the two, the, the Auschwitz and, and Gaza thing, because, like, there is a narrative throughput there that, you know, Gaza is, like, next to the state of Israel, and the state of Israel was founded by people who, some of whom had escaped from Auschwitz. There's a, there's a narrative throughput. The actual, like, conceptual link you argue that yourself, but like Stephen Bush replying to the uh, Corbyn had been to this thing, an MP who is not a survivor appearing at an event with that title, who is unable to see the problem with a racist mural, who doesn't see the problem with the English irony gag is another matter. But the thing is that, you know, but, that, you know, that, that, uh, that thing, it was, um, it was organized by the Holocaust because it's that, I can't remember his name for the life of me. Um, but it's that Holocaust survivor who literally, who I think he wrote a book about it. Mm. But he's the one who's always making that connection, um, and there's a lot. That, that, you know, that, you know, this isn't a prop. This isn't a prop. But opinion. you would not have it. You would not have expected this shoddy stuff because obviously, if Corbyn is anti-Semitic for being there mm-hmm. at an event with that title, mm-hmm. if it is problematic, then it is de facto problematic for Holocaust survivors who are there, or who and, the, who spoke, who were literally running it. It was run by a Holocaust. Survivor. Yeah, like it's. It's bad faith to pretend anything else. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing he did this year, like uh, Stephen Bush, like um, there was he had some uninvited pushback that he did on uh, I think it some uh, Tristan what's his name Stan Tristan oh, um, Tristan Cross yeah. that's it uh, internet Twitter personality I guess I don't know. yeah um, and journalist probably. Um, on saying that he has... Uh, Tristan said he had uh, disdain for anyone who voted Lib Dem or Tory in the mm. last election, and that you should own what you have now. Stephen Bush replied, uh, it's really simple. If you tweet, speak, or write of your, quote, disdain for people who voted Tory Lib Dem at the last election, without caveat, the people you are tweeting about includes the people who did not vote for Labour because of the mural. If someone, for example, tweeted about how people who are nervous around the police are simply criminals, without caveat, they are including many people who have been stopped and searched for no reason, i.e. they are including me. And it's just, why, in that, in that way, why would you bring that up? Because, like, you're not stupid. You know mm-hmm. that people who tweet, um, who say tweet anti-Semitism yeah. are not, treated in the same way as people who tweeted about crime in a racist way yeah if you tweet about anti-semitism you rightly get castigated and you know there are inquiries made but if you tweet about you know how um black people are just criminals somehow that means you're wrong but should be listened to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, i'm sorry it's it's not on the same grounds at all no and like i'm not even saying that jewish people didn't genuinely feel that way like that's absolutely fine like Maybe he's arguing that they should be they shouldn't be accused of lying, which is accurate. Like you, you yeah. shouldn't accuse Jewish people of lying about not liking Corbyn. Yeah. But isn't the more urgent question is like, why do they feel that way? What do they feel about it in particular? What what policy threatened to reduce the legal status of mm-hmm. Jewish people? Yeah. What policy targeted Jewish people in the UK? Mm-hmm. You know, like he doesn't say, for instance, that you're allowed to tweet your disdain of people who believe Muslims are overrunning Europe in a diabolical plot. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like that. Like, it just... And the whole, like, the whole thing of it is, like, awful. That The whole spirit of it is awful. Because it's essentially saying, like, if you, you, you're not allowed to treat your politics as irreconcilable from other people's. Yeah. You have to uh, include people's whose political actions directly oppose yours. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point? There's no politics with that. If there's no real political disagreement... Let's set aside the anti-Semitism thing. If yeah. You're, if you're, 
if you're saying there can be no political disagreement with people who who you disagree with on the distribution of power, resources, and mm-hmm. whatever, that's there's no politics. That's an absolutist system. Mm-hmm. You know, you're arguing about your place in the court. You're not arguing about whether the court should exist. Mm-hmm. You know? Anyway, that was him this year. Aside from anything, Stephen Bush's was a pointless intervention. I just don't get it. I don't get where he's where he's where he's gone on that one. Uh, next, we have Stella Creasy. Mm-hmm. What's been? She hasn't been up to much. She just had a kid. Um, there's there's not much she's been up to. I mainly included her because I because I signed up for the Labour Party for about three months. <laughs> And you I still get, get emails. emails. <laughs> oh, I still get emails. I'm never off that email list. Uh, I received an email um, on her action on Spy Kids. Oh, on yeah. the uh, intelligence, uh, intelligence services bill. Yeah. Basically, um, this bill, uh, the way it was written, is basically that any agencies that are used by the state to gather intelligence would be given immunity from prosecution when they are authorised to do so. This bill that was going through would also deny complainants any right to redress. Now, with the spy cops trial going on and undercover policing, obviously very high in most left wingers' minds. Yeah. Uh, not to mention liberals, frankly. Mm-hmm. And you know, BLM people, racial injustice people, given the example of what happened with the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Yep. Um, this bill is obviously quite high on people's agendas. Mm-hmm. Um, being one of her constituents and a very brief Labour member, as I say, I received an email from Stella saying, uh, this week, Parliament returns to the proposed laws on covert human intelligence sources and when and if people undertaking this work can be permitted to commit criminal acts as part of an investigation. It is long overdue to put these activities on a statutory footing so that those involved in this work can be held to account for their behaviour. Much of the coverage of this bill has centred on the security services and police and how they conduct their role in tackling serious organised crime and terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet data also shows children and vulnerable people have been used as covert sources too, and so pushed into criminal behaviour or high-risk situations. As a result, at this point, I wish to uh, draw people's attention to that the header of this email, which was a banner, said, let kids be kids, no more child spies, written in Comic Sans, with a child's eye poking through a keyhole. Nice. Um, She said, I proposed an amendment to the bill to protect spy kids. This amendment is intended to stop their exploitation. And it just... I really focused on that this year because it's just it's perfect stellar and other centrist activity. You know, yeah. you reduce an issue to its constituent elements. You pick one of those elements, usually yeah. like the most unarguable, low hanging thing, and then yeah. make that yours. Like it's defensive while appearing to be aggressive, yeah. because if you lose, you win. And if you win, you win. Yeah. You know, I just I think it's interesting how easy it is for has been for her to slip back into a generalized media environment. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I know she never really stopped leaking or doing, you know, interviews for The Sun or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, this year, she, for, for example, she did a podcast for The Telegraph um, talking about how it was being like a working mother, not particularly like politically inclined, but it's just like, Oh yeah, no, you know, I can just do an interview for the Telegraph. Like yeah. they stand against everything you claim to believe. But yeah, fuck it, do an appearance. Yeah. What, what does it matter? She's very much the "what does it matter" yeah. thing now. You know, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Spy Kids thing also came on the same day that it was uh, inadvertently revealed that she's been leaking to Gabriel Pogrand. Oh, <laughs> do you remember that? Oh shit! Um, yeah, I remember. They um didn't he forgot to remove her name, didn't he? <laughs> He forgot to remove her name from an email um, <laughs> that she sent off. 
Just um, as like a little lesson that, you know, make sure that whoever you're leaking to just does their due diligence in using MS Paint to scratch out your name. <laughs> it was very funny. There was um, uh, Sarah Woolley, who um, was a journalist, who uh, like called her out on saying, like, uh, one day you're going to realise that being called Hun isn't on par with MPs abstaining on state-sanctioned rape. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Creasy doesn't, like, Creasy, Stella Creasy, well-known for getting into, for name-searching and getting into uh, arguments with uh, anybody who in who crosses her. Yeah. Uh, replied to this, I'm sorry to read your disclosure. I don't think Twitter is the right way to express your concerns or to address this. And what I'm doing on Spy Kids issue, if you want to properly discuss either and are local, please do get in touch. Just doesn't even have to respond. Just say, yeah. oh, why don't we meet in person? Knowing that that will never happen. Yeah. And yeah. Gemma Willey, Sarah Woolley is a, a, a journalist and never, she'll never <clears> do this. She also did say she declined Stella Creasy's offer to speak privately because there's no telling which email she forwards to right-wing papers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, just a full array of the issue isn't what you think it is by yeah. magnifying you spike kids and not, you know, raping activists. Yeah. And isn't, and you know, oh, by the way, also, I can't even talk to you about this on here. Yeah. You're on Twitter, so I can't talk to you about it. Just yeah. completely closed off. Completely closed off. Um, the only other thing she's done this year, uh, she tweeted in August, I used to admire harry cole for being libertarian demanding action against nanny states <laughs> and protection against governments to ignore rights of individuals even when not popular as the root of freedom just this harry cole got, greed for guido guy harry cole he is yeah oh, fuck's that's where he got started he's one of the founding yeah yeah i was just making sure that i was making sure it was i was it was the right person i had in my head that she was praising yeah it's that guy sake. it's the political editor of the sun and it's yeah. just it's that easy because, you know, anything, any uh, issue you have, I've got a better take on it mm -hmm. and a less offensive take on it. And by the way, any time you want to address me, I can't address you on here. Yep. Perfect. Uh, next we have, oh boy. Okay, now we're getting into the big dogs. Lisa Nandy. Okay. Okay. Third runner-up in the latest leadership. She was made foreign, shadow foreign secretary mm -hmm. um, and has mostly followed on with the great Keir Starmer reset, reset pretty much as expected. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally massively fucking up, um, saying in October on Radio 4 that anti-Semitism is a particular kind of racism that punches up instead of punching down. Yeah, she said that a couple of times, didn't she? Yeah. It's like one of her go-tos. Yeah. It's like, in what the fuck? Keep referring to the racist caricatures that you have about Jewish people. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's done... Again, she slipped back into the into the kind of standard issue way of doing politics. She did a, a, a seminar called Doing Our Duty for Hong Kong that she hosted at the Adam Smith Institute. Oh. Um, her biggest thing this year, I guess, was the like deepening moves back into kind of NATO... And you know, yeah. hedge, let's say hegemonic foreign policy. Yeah. Um, we will stand up to Russian attacks on democracy. We will seek both constructive engagement with the Chinese government to tackle shared issues like climate change and build the independence we need to speak up for human rights, democracy, and rule of law. It's like stand up to Russian attacks, but constructive engagement with the Chinese government. Yeah. We hope you have a wild winter fest and a cool, <laughs> respect, calm, respectful Ramadan. Um, yeah, referring, she referred to the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal and Labour's response, saying they hesitated in condemning an authoritarian regime. It was totally wrong, but our response to this was to cast doubt on what happened and call only for dialogue. 
Yeah, and you know, we've we've like again, this is our classic, classic pre twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. Reading cynically through the lines, condemning an authoritarian regime, yeah. strong words, beacon of democracy, alliance for freedom. You're not going to bomb Riyadh, are you? We all know what this means by now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she's also been on the nationalism circuit occasionally. She's the person who gets brought up for unionism, saying we stand up for Britain, we stand up for British people, we stand up for British interests, and we will always put that first. So she's Britain first now. Yep. Um, but this new love of nationhood isn't to be shared equally. Uh, she also said, we should look outwards to other countries where they've had to deal with divisive nationalism in places like Catalonia, <laughs> while referring to Scottish independence. Well, you know, just getting ready for sending in the troops. <laughs> it's just a language like, deal with divisive nationalism. That's not, I will contest a referendum. Yeah. I will engage with your your Scottish nationalist or anything yeah. like in the field of like electoral politics. Yeah, That's... Police repression, if you, especially with the reference to Catalonia, that's yeah. we'll send in the cops. Yeah. Um, it's like, for God's sake, Keir said <laughs> Wales five times. Aren't you happy with that? <laughs> she's yeah, she's filling that role of like trying to look like the passionate Red Wall MP, saying there is a real need for Labour to articulate emotions and values. If we forget to do that, then it finds only one outlet, and that is the populist right or the radical left. And I think both of those things are a dead end end for this country and for the world. I, too, believe that fascism and socialism are the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, it's just the standard kind of... She's she's very much... um, Was it like this year she also said, like, I know it's this year, but... um... She said that she had she she had phone calls from Labour's sister parties in Europe and how they were so glad that you know Corbyn was gone now. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> those because, those yeah, famously she's... successful parties. <laughs> but yeah, she's a, she's basically filling in the gaps as they're given. Occasionally, mm-hmm. she gets more vocal. She did talk about um, sanctions against uh, Israeli annexed settlements in the West Bank. Did she get told off for that? Oh, she massively got told off. She got told to back down. I think a couple of weeks later, there was a an article saying she's never been in favour of BDS. Oh, fuck's sake. Isn't she like and, the chair of... Um, uh, Friends, Friends of Palestine. Palestine. Yeah. Yep. So, she, so she's one of those people. She's still playing from the old hymn sheet, but she occasionally gets wrong-footed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she doesn't... She just... <laughs> she's the par- paragon example of that person. Yeah. It's just going to be words now. Uh, next, we have oh boy, Paul Mason. Oh. Um, Let me just take a big drag off my disgusting spice cigarette. <laughs> I, I need to get sorry. myself into the same brainwaves. You know, like you never watched Fringe, did you? In Fringe, no. you like you pump in Fringe. One of the f- core mechanics in Fringe is pumping your body full of drugs while you pump another person's body full of drugs, so your brainwaves can then meet on the astral plane. Nice. And so, you know, you kind of got to do that to really get into Paul Mason. I have no idea who Paul Mason is anymore. <laughs> I don't think he does anymore. I don't know. So this year, he's reinvented himself, as far as I can tell, yeah. into... So he's a popular front, broad left, anti-Stalinist, national security, anti-postmodern, anti-Brexit, correcting the historical record guy. Okay. He's got a new book out uh, this year, I think, on like fascism. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> um, 
he's basically I'm the, I'm a Marxist, but I'm the good Marxist. I'm mm. the humanist Marxist, okay. Marxist, not like all those like little nasty anti-imperialist Marxists. Yeah, um, he's basically spent this year going mad about the Popular Front against fascism in the 30s and trying to relive those days <laughs> by stopping the Stalinists. Good job. Um, talking about how Corbynism failed because its adherents quote were left their leftism was deeply imbued with academic post-structuralism, anti-humanism and determinism. <laughs> you can go past Red Wall voters without them going fucking post-structuralist. I ain't voting for no post-structuralist. <laughs> yeah, everyone's, everyone in the Corbyn Labour Party was rolling around hugging themselves over people being allowed to keep pets in rented accommodation. That really owed a lot to a thousand plateaus. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's got a very bizarre ranty style. Um, Brexit is equivalent to fascism, and the left has to unite with liberals and social democrats to oppose it. And if they don't, they are Stalinists or they are fascists. Apparently, according to a young Labour chair, uh, Jess Barnard, um, at a meeting in Norwich, when members didn't respond well to being told to stand down for Lib Dems in a progressive alliance, Paul Mason shouted, You should count yourselves lucky you aren't living under fascism. <laughs> <laughs> It was the Lib Dems that saved us. <laughs> um, we owe them everything. Anyone oh. who anyone who does anything for any Lib Dem ever again is a fucking monster. Uh, understandably, he's gone full in for Keir. Well, yeah, because after uh, a job for Keith. Uh, saying the right uh, during the leadership election, saying the right are backing Nandy, the Stalinists who destroyed Corbynism are backing RLB. Yeah. It's a no-brainer for an anti-capitalist to vote Keir for leader. Um, also, he said, um, with all the candidates, we are getting a sense of how much talent was suppressed <laughs> by Corbyn's refusal to broaden the Labour front bench. <laughs> Even loyal people of talent were sidelined to avoid upsetting the Lexit deadbeats. Jesus. Like, that's... Not one hundred percent not true, and you literally have documentary evidence of the composition mm-hmm. of the Corbyn bench. Mm-hmm. Like it's not true, or at least like at the very least, the composition of the Corbyn front bench wasn't because of fucking Lexit. Yeah, in fact, probably the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some candidates in the leadership election he seemed to really take against that he didn't think was talented. Um, mm-hmm. He infamously he said, "I've just signed this open letter to the Labour leadership candidates." I don't want Labour's policy on reproductive rights dictated by the Vatican, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, uh, when, when suggesting that this uh, aimed at uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, obviously, being a Catholic, uh, when uh, criticised for this, he said, I went to a Catholic grammar school in the 1970s taught by ultra-violent priests, and I spent my early years in the Labour Party, party fighting the anti-abortionists on exactly this issue. There's no place for the misogynistic thugs of the Vatican in Labour politics. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> um... His joy at Keir being elected uh, was reflected in a long tweet thread where he said that there will be no retreat from radicalism on state ownership or direction of investment, no support for Trump's war with Iran, uh, and Brexit is done, no rejoin project under Labour. Um, how is that? How's that uh, <laughs> state ownership thing working out for you, Paul? Mm-hmm. Huh? Is it working out well? Um, that's a key thing about Paul Mason, especially this year as he's got more and more hyperactive. Mm-hmm. He never reflects... He never takes the time to say he was wrong. And he never really even reads anything he said, despite leaving the tweets up. No, he um, seems to have got like... A, he's like a much shoutier, but he's like Dan Hodges. You know, he's always wrong. He's always screaming. Yeah. Well, he constantly refers back to his own books. It's like, I predicted this. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's never, never end, takes any criticism. It's always full steam ahead for the HMS Paul Mason. Mm-hmm. You know, HMS stands for hyperactive Mason spice. <laughs> um, so yeah, by December, um, he was tweeting things like on the future of labor foreign policy. What really winds up part of the left should be clear. A social democratic party has to be for the national security of its country and willing to run the state apparatus. We are not smashing it. We are running it. Uh-huh. But until the left gets its head around this key criterion that we want to run the coercive apparatus uh-huh. as the price of reforming it, we're debating different things. The Leninist position is logically coherent. Smash the state, oppose the national security of your own country, see bourgeois democracy as tactical. It's just that you should never try running as a mainstream socialist party with this in your head. The main point of Labour foreign policy should be never again Iraq, Afghanistan, or bloody Sunday for that matter. We'll see. And it's like, uh, yeah, sure. When he says the coercive apparatus, he means like prisons and cops, but actually what he also means is Trident. Yeah. Like there's there's space for arguing about this coercive apparatus that isn't just smash it or run it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple more funny things he said. Um, on Trump, Pompeo starting a Cold War with China. Here's how to tell if Trump and Pompeo are serious. They could tomorrow order all U.S. companies operating in the PRC to negotiate with freely elected factory councils. Good, good. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I could see Trump I mean, doing that. <laughs> I absolutely get it, but it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Um, the left has to get serious. I predicted in Clean Bright Future that Xi would start to export his Marxism to the West. That's happening now. Western Marxism, with its commitments, humanism, workerism, and democracy, is under attack. I don't know. Export his Marxism? Mm. What? What? Yeah. What are you talking about? This has always existed in the West. Like, I'm not even going to go as far as to say Marxism is a Western thing, but there's an awful lot of Marxist thought that happens in the West. Yeah. That's not like humanistic or workerist or democracy Mm -hmm. democratic you know like finally the measure of the man um when somebody said you need to take some time off paul (laughs) um another thought policeman trying to silence a left-wing journalist good job you guys don't have gulags anymore eh (laughs) you guys don't have them anymore Oh, Let's say he leveled this. He leveled this accusation as well at Tom Mills, that guy who wrote the BBC <laughs> yeah. book, yeah. one of the nicest boys on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's it for the Orwell Prize this year. That's, uh, Michael Chesham, Stephen Bush, Stella Creasy, Lisa Nandy, and Paul Mason. I think we know who won. It's Mason, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's obviously Paul Mason. Paul Mason is obviously. Yeah. He's so good. <laughs> By good, I mean. Okay, so we have our final 2020 We Don't Talk About the Weather award category, which is the football in the groin funniest moment. Self-explanatory. What's the funniest thing that's happened yeah. this year? And on a funniest thing, because last year has was fucking grim. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's looking down this list. We've had some times. <laughs> <laughs> we've had some times. Like remember that time we went outside? I don't. No, I don't <laughs> remember when we went out that, outside for more than like a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, first off, we have the twenty man saga. 
<laughs> so if you remember on the 8th of July, uh, Helen Pidd, who is the North of England editor for The Guardian, published one of her uh, State of the Nation pieces where she went around Lee in... Um, where is Lee? Fuck. Somewhere up north. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, somewhere up north. And uh, interviewed a load of people. Um, in Lee Town Centre on Wednesday afternoon, Andrew Twentyman was on the phone sourcing and Dudra sausage for his artisanal pizza parlour, mm-hmm. recently reopened at under 50% capacity. A first-time Tory voter in December's general election, Sunak's hospitality package made him, f- made him feel massively vindicated for switching his vote from Labour. Can you imagine what state we'd be in if Jeremy Corbyn had been in charge of all of this, <laughs> he asked? Um, and, yeah, that was the title of the piece. Um, this obviously came in for massive ridicule because yeah. not only had Helen Pidd already tweeted earlier in the year about how excellent the pizza in uh, <laughs> Twentyman's mm-hmm. in Lee was, um, this also came at the end of like four years of croissants and avocado and coffee discourse. Mm-hmm. Immediately pushed in with Duja sausage. Also, this she did this one. Um, after, like, during the election, she'd had her thing with him about why he was going to be voting Tory, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And so people had done research on the Twentyman fam- family and the dynasty and, you know, certain things about him that would make, might make this business owner not seem like a traditional Tory voter. Things like his brother being a property developer and shit like that. <laughs> like, people had already done their research before it comes out. It's like, oh, I was just happened to be talking to this guy again. <laughs> um, cue everybody re- review bombing Twenty Man's Pizza. Nice. Um, asking for the say, I asked for the Induja sausage, but the waiter, waiter just coughed all over me. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, Helen Pid tried to then defend herself and say, "Yeah, it's a it's an on running series. Yeah, that just happens to find exactly the same people all the time and ask them to whether they've changed their position." A thing that people famously do about their politics, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, she tweeted the day after saying, uh, you can be working class and run a restaurant or indeed be a property developer. Ask Andrew Twentyman how much money he makes from the pizzeria. Minimum wage. Thing is, she's right. And she got that from the talking to the leader of the socialist campaign group for the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she said the Guardian interviews uh, universal credit claimants all the time. I'm sure I will do so in Lee before long, too. Maybe. Yep. Yep. Um, it was just incredibly funny watching people try and, like, basically people doing the opposite of what they've been doing for five years. Yeah. And trying to make it out as if there's no change. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, next, we have oh, a short one the barbecue, beer, and freedom guy who, when um, I think one of the election people in America was making a speech and he invaded the stage screaming, the Biden crime family is stealing this election in a barbecue beer and freedom cut-off T-shirt. It was perfect. It was so good. I want that T-shirt so bad. Um, Next we have, oh boy, one of my my top ones. Okay. The the leather jacket affair. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, David Aronovich, <laughs> I believe in October, tweeted about his experience uh, out on the streets in central London. I'm just going to read this out ad verbatim. So I'm walking down a street in central London, not far from the BBC, heading for an event that I'm going to moderate at the Swedish Embassy. It's early <laughs> afternoon. A smart white car pulls up and the middle-aged driver leans over and in broken English says, can I please help because he's lost and needs to, needs to get to Heathrow. Poor man, I think. He's miles off. I start to use my phone to find a route, but he says he doesn't know how to use the car sat-nav. Can I make it work? He opens his door. 
I have to sit on the passenger seat to reach his navigation. I keep the door open and my feet on the pavement. Pause. So, (laughs) he keeps his feet on the pavement and keeps the door open. Does he think there's roving gangs of Taken-style kidnappers driving around abducting 50-year-old No, no, he doesn't doesn't think Taken-style, but he does think (laughs) Saw-style. Yeah. Because he knows that eventually someone is going to try... He's going to get comeuppance eventually for his words and deeds. He's not a room. Editor of the Times on the phone saying, what I do have are a very particular set of headlines. Racist (laughs) headlines I've acquired over a very long career. Headlines that make me a nightmare for people like you. I assume you're Albanian. (laughs) If you let my columnist go now, that'll be the end of it. (laughs) Uh, So he continues, I just about get it to work. I am from Milano, he says, explaining that he has just come from London Fashion Week, which closes today, and now he's heading out. Oh, I say, but I really have to go now. He tells me I'm a kind man, and he had some clothes that he was carrying to the show. His first red flag is there, because no one has ever said that to David Aronovich. Um, He had some clothes that he was carrying for the show, but he doesn't want to take them on the airplane. Why is he looking for Heathrow then? Mm -hmm. Fucking idiot. He doesn't want to take them on the airplane. Would I like them? He reaches behind him and pulls out three expensive-looking leather and suede jackets. You take, he says. You guess how much they sell for, he demands. I have no idea. £1,200, he says. You take. So, okay, it'd just be churlish to refuse. (laughs) I take them and begin to exit. But I need to take something back for family, he says. Souvenir, something they like. You can give me some money, (laughs) I tell him. My family love all the traditional London souvenirs. The Queen's legal tender. (laughs) I tell him I really have to go and only have a little cash. I reach for my wallet and give him 60. (laughs) 60 cash is a little cash. Oh, God. Different world, isn't it? Not enough. He sees I have more. (laughs) I end up giving him £100. He suggests going to a bank to get more. (laughs) I say I have to go. He gives me one of the jackets. He says he is grateful, but doesn't look it, and drives off. I am a hundred light, and it turns out one PVC jacket worth 40 quid heavier. And I think, what a lot of effort. (laughs) He uh, continued the following day, just a postscript to yesterday's leather jacket. I'm not greedy and had no desire for a leather jacket but feared being embarrassed and wanted to get away. I've realised that these desires are even more powerful than greed, and con artists know it. <laughs> right, first off, that's bullshit. Aronovich, I've seen him, and he is exactly the kind of guy who thinks he looks good in a leather jacket, but doesn't. <laughs> Real Top Gear energy. Yeah. From that guy. Secondly, like, I, you, you just bought a leather jacket off somebody who drove up to you out of embarrassment. Yes. It's the the amount that he's so separated from real life. Because, like, I imagine most people who are on the street, if you can remember what that was like, most people who are on the street, like, I'm not going to go and spend money on the cup and ball guy who sits on the corner. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if somebody comes up to me and wants to sell me a phone card, I'm probably going to say no. Yeah. You know, like... But what if it was free leather jackets? how often From is London he Fashion not Week. on the how often is he just getting black cabs everywhere why does he have a yeah. hundred quid in his wallet and he thinks that's not very much cash mm-hmm. why did he give it up you just say no yeah 
you feel absolutely okay about saying no to like left wingers on Twitter. Yeah, and I bet you he always feels he feels fine saying no to any homeless person that asks for spare change. Yeah, yeah, mad. Okay, next up we have oh boy, the four twenty bando baby. Michael mm-hmm. Gove's daughter on TikTok. Ah, yes. That was this year, perhaps back in March, I think. Uh, so you're telling me that Michael Gove's daughter is part of the um, the Chinese government's opium war style? I'm saying Michael Gove's daughter is digital fentanyl. That's the one. Which, ironically, I think was one of the things she referred to taking while on the TikTok screen. <laughs> The highlights of... I mean, there's there's no greater thing to this. It's Michael Gove's daughter, for a long time, was on TikTok and no one noticed. And was bitching about it constantly. Uh, hammer and sickle drawn on her walls. <laughs> um, real working-class cosplay, you know, like wearing baggy sweaters, posing on brick walls outside flats in Hackney. Yep. Presumably now 1,500 times more expensive than when she moved in, <laughs> now that she's moved in. Um some hot quotes. God really made me bisexual. Bisexual spelt with a three. Nice. God really made me bisexual, alt, mentally ill, also spelt with a three, liberal, and gave me a Tory cabinet minister for a father and said, <laughs> made it, make it work. Excellent. Uh, my feelings when both your parents are controversial assholes. To be fair, the parents are. <laughs> she was uh, smoking weed on camera saying, me passing the Zoob around, did you text your dealer, Daddy, when are you back, when you were faded last night, thinking it was your dad? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another video, me leaving quarantine to spend three three years' worth of birthday money on an ounce. (laughs) (laughs) Me at church camp in year nine when no one wanted to do Molly with me. (laughs) And then... And then took a really, actually a really dark turn. I love bat eaters. Okay. <laughs> Basically, she's she's like a, a, a rich girl. Like she's a chaotic TikTok at university. Team. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I, it's impossible not to love. Yeah. Oh. Next up, we have. I would probably say my pick. This is gonna. Mm-hmm. This is gonna be the one that we come to at the end with. It's just constant thumb on the scales. The Tonagawa um, of our awards. Look, you don't like it. Why don't you get elected, pass a law, and then we'll see about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cleaner Gate. Mm-hmm. This started with an LBC journalist Which tweeting uh, a rando one, the one I've not recognised um, from before. Um, by allowing somebody into your home to do a job, you're helping to keep another household financially viable. Owen Jones responded Mm -hmm. to this, saying, declaring something simple doesn't make it so. If someone can afford a cleaner, they should be paying them to stay at home and doing their own cleaning. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the government should be sustaining people's incomes Mm -hmm. in ways that avoid them coming into contact with a potentially deadly virus. Otherwise, official policy is protecting middle-class professionals who can work at home and risking the lives of working-class people. Turns out that was correct. This spawned a raft of outrage from, it would. in particular, Sarah Ditton. Oh. Uh, she said, I don't have any more time in lockdown. I have less because I'm sharing my workplace space with two teens and another adult. There's more dirt because of more people. The cleaning is killing me, and this is a bad take. 
Owen Jones responded, why don't you get your teenagers to clean? We operated a rotor system growing up to distribute daily household chores and don't force mostly low-paid women to risk their health or their lives because that's extremely selfish behaviour. Oh, boy, that was red rag to a ball. Never call one of these people selfish or, mm-hmm. like, never call them privileged. Mm-hmm. They really hate it. How dare you say that about the Minecraft mum? Particularly mom. privileged behavior um at this point yeah as you mentioned bear in mind sarah Dixon's husband is a youtuber who works for playstation access um and this keeps him busy enough to be unable apparently to get the dust pad out every now and again uh other people kind of uh chimed in on this um janice turner said free online parenting and household management classes from a childless mansplainer mothers thank you for your service owen nice little nice little bit of uh, homophobia there mm-hmm um sarah ditton also said one thing i'd have expected owen to understand given he made his name busting the ugly work try chav stereotype is that work is a source of independence and self-esteem for a lot of people and many are dissatisfied with handouts this produced grade a versailles discourse Mm -hmm. um philip hencher said we've been playing our cleaner the full rate to stay home this week we asked her whether she'd prefer to come back to work or carry on staying at home on full pay she didn't hesitate she'd rather start work (sighs) david badil there's no question that our cleaner wants to come back to work she's told me and i said no i know this may be hard to believe but she likes us our family the environment (laughs) we create and she's bored at home all day (laughs) just just counting down the minutes before i can go clean off all the boot black off around the sink from david badil's bathroom it's just the fact that like you don't think that there might be some other holes you have over this person yes. other than just paying the money you know for instance the idea that you might get rid of them if you cause too much fuss mm-hmm. and don't appear eager these are people who haven't had let's say supervised jobs mm-hmm. or like other jobs in many many years i mean Look, my cleaner, hasn't, my cleaner was happy when has... i gave them that mood bracelet that alerts me whenever they're sad Badil probably hasn't had a job which he wasn't exec producer on since <laughs> 1996. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to take advice from these people. Um, the Anons uh, chimed in with some really funny stuff. My cleaner owns a couple of shops, a large house, and drives a Maserati. The stereotype doesn't always fit. What? What? No, they don't. They are lying to you. Or there is something else going on there. Yeah. I'm sorry, it does. Um and if you're uh, another person said, and if you're a working class professional who has a cleaner, what then? Mwah. Yeah. The full ga- the full array, the full Monty of stuff. Working I'm working class, class and I own a property portfolio and have a staff of cleaners. <laughs> but I'm also a cleaner. <laughs> um, somebody called Journo Bird, some journalist. They're a blue tick, but no idea. I cleaned my bathroom last week. Lack of deja vu made me realise I haven't done it before. My kids never flush the toilet. I use that toilet brush on a daily basis. I don't need to get any more intimate with my bathroom ever again. What the fuck's wrong with your kids? What? Julie Bindle, noted turf. Um, I can only assume that any male socialist giving instructions to women about the ethics of having a cleaner chooses not to consume pornography. After all, the women abused on the porn trade have their exploited labour to the most extreme degree. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say any of the pornography that Owen Jones watches does not abuse women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's just the thing of, like, yeah, it's exp- it's exploited labour. It's all exploited. Mm. It's not exactly the same thing, is it? 
Um, Janice Turner saying, um, no one is forcing cleaners to go to work. People are, ma- are making arrangements so their cleaners are safe. <laughs> no one during this pandemic have been forced to go to work at all. In fact, no one ever, no one ever in the history, in the history of paid employment have been forced to go to work. Um, believe it or not, many, even cl- many people, even cleaners actually want to return to work. Important kind of little contrast there it makes them feel useful and normal and spare me your sanctimonious lectures about low-paid women owen my mother was a cleaner that's how she bought my school shoes yeah but not now though is it just every that's the only response you need to this like whenever they try and do that yeah Mm. not now uh dan hodges said i see employing a cleaner is today's crime against the state against the state um Naturally, Sarah Dissom had an article out in The Spectator within a matter of hours, almost Mm -hmm. like this was planned, saying, so I don't have a cleaner, but God, I have never wanted one more than I do during lockdown. I am not a clean person, maybe six out of ten on the clean scale, by which I mean I've been inside a Lakeland more than once, but can still make a bottle of floor soap last several years. I don't know if you know what... If you don't know what Lakeland or floor soap are, then I'm afraid you are a sub five on the clean scale. Sorry, I do not make the rules. The dust is always there. It's driving me crazy. And because I'm sharing my house with one other adult, two teenagers and a dog, the dust is joined by other things. A tide of Labrador hair, peanut butter smears on the cupboard handles, shoes in surprising places, dirty cups on the edge of the bathtub. All of the evidence of our overlapping lives in one crammed space, interlocking maps of mess, things to be wiped and rewiped, mopped and remopped day after day. Cleaning is work, and it's work that I'd rather not do myself or negotiate with my household. I already have a job, and no one expects me to grow my own grain, fix my own car, or slaughter my own pig. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good, because, like, okay, lockdown has, like, we've... Like, our household is very much on top of each other. We don't live in a large mm. flat. And because universities can't have their kids, you know, the kids back here, there is more mm. mess. We have a lot of animals in our small place. It's always yeah. been quite messy. But we always, also, we just tidy up. Mm. It's not... And, like, if, if the place was much larger, we could... And, like, it was even more t- tidying. It's not that much of an imposition to for a little bit longer. And it's the way she makes out that it's, like, it's impossible for her to ask her husband to do anything. Yeah, like, and it's the, it's it's just that it's the poor me thing of things to be wiped and rewiped, mopped and remopped, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fucking cleaning. Mm-hmm. How have you got to this age and only realised that that's what having a household is? See, I'm willing to put look, up with a certain level of mess, but I've got cleaner as I've gotten older. See, look, a true like a feminist, a true feminist employs a woman to do the work for her. She doesn't ask her husband to do any tidying. <laughs> and it's just like no one expects me to grow my own grain, fix my own car, or slaughter my own pig. Yeah, that's because that's not the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, the last thing, the postscript to this was, um, uh, obviously, during the get your teen, why don't you get your teenagers to clean? Yeah. Um, Sarah Disson responded, get my teenagers to clean, declaring something simple doesn't make it so. And the mwah was someone, John Connor M. I'm going to give them full, full credit for this because it's amazing. Uh Get my teenagers to clean, declaring something doesn't make it so. He said, you claim parents are forcing their kids to be trans. If that's true, (laughs) you should be able to make yours clean their room once a week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, beautiful boom. Uh, That's just because transitioning is so much more fun than dusting. (laughs) 
And easier. <laughs> um, next we have... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to really quantify this. TikTok witches hexing the moon. Yep. If you remember, there were some reports <laughs> I'm familiar the with my, the work of my sister magicians. <laughs> Um, apparently, somebody saying apparently there's some jazz going on right now over witch talk on witch talk, saying a bunch of witches got together and hexed the moon, and people are saying Artemis is hurt and Apollo's pissed. <laughs> part of me is is like, wow, more witch talk drama. But part of me worries it's true. I trust witches on Tumblr, at least in this corner, way more than TikTok. Have you been? Well, because they're not weird... Chinese, are they? They're not infected with the evil Chinese witchcraft. Have you been getting any weird vibes from Apollo lately? Or (laughs) Artemis, for that matter? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Someone called the Pastel Priestess replied, Artemis seems very unfazed and unbothered, and Apollo rolled his eyes when I asked him about this ridiculous situation. (laughs) (laughs) I have for years... I miss when the internet was just this and people like David Vidal weren't on it. (laughs) I just, like... I, I always thought there would be a pagan resurgence at some point because mm-hmm. we live in quite a pagan time of there's a lot of symbols and visual cues mm-hmm. and those kind of things that, that make more sense in paganism than like a more abstract monotheism. But yes, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, next one. Uh, this, I don't know how to say this. The discovery of Callum Campbell. Callum Campbell is Alistair Campbell's son. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say he can't, he sort of comes stems from the same, he's sort of stemming from the same way. So here are a selection of his tweets. Okay. I sway from side to side on the old firm. You could catch me in an uh, Irish bar on Sunday night listening to our Irish Republican tunes, and I uh, love it. You could catch me with mates, and I'm a Rangers fan. I'd probably uh, sway more Rangers, but I have ultimate respect for both sides. Uh, and on Sundays, I sometimes appear in the Mother Red Cap in Archway, North London traditional IRA pub, and demand they put on the Rangers game for a bit of a laugh. Uh, I don't... What? Uh, he's also got some other interests. Obviously, he's not he's not all about uh, he's not just about casual. baiting Republicans. <laughs> he is keyed into politics, uh, as his father is. Crazy to see Labour voters saying Keir Starmer is doing a bad job because a famous Tory voter, Jeremy Clarkson, is now saying he'd vote for Starmer. How do you plan on winning elections after our worst election results since 1935 without converting hot voters from other side sides? I have nothing against entitled wealthy lefties. I have something against virtue signers who lecture us to stick to their cultural Marxism. <laughs> uh. um, yeah, he's a character. Um, next we have, oh yeah, the internal border in Kent. Um, oh yeah. Earlier in the year, Michael Gove confirmed a de facto internal border in Kent. Lorries will have to uh, have a Kent access permit to get into the uh, the Garden County. Um, according to the government website, the driver could be stopped and fined up to £300 for entering Kent without having a Kent access permit, permit or for making false declarations when travelling to the port of Dover or Eurotunnel. <laughs> Just Kentish man tattooed on their foreheads. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Um, next funniest thing uh, Helen Lewis being removed from Watch Dogs Legion Um, (laughs) if you don't know this Watch Dogs Legion, a video game came out this year, uh, set in a future fascist London um, where a fascist party has taken over 
and it included radio stations, one of which is features like podcast material from uh, various real-world people, including Helen Lewis. Um, and Figgy from the Romaniacs. And Ian Dunt as well, yeah, from the from the Romaniacs. Um, uh, apparently her quote included, unfortunately, one of the things we're very bad at as, at as humans is recognising different things when they don't look like previous examples. So I think in pre-crisis Britain, we had an idea that when fascism came, it would look again like the 1930s. It would look like a single charismatic leader. It would look like jackboots in the street and huge flags. But it didn't look like that. It looked like social media groups. It looked like poisoning the well so that no information could be trusted. Like... You fucking ripped... Aside from anything, you ripped that off. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so mm-hmm. many people, like, the next dictator, the next Fuhrer will be dressed in a suit rather than a military uniform. That goes back to, like, the fucking end of the war. Probably in the middle of the war. Yeah. You know? Um, anyway, so, obviously, uh, people raised her history of transphobia, and they actually deleted the um, <laughs> Helen Lewis podcast. Removed it in a patch. From the game. Well, increasing um, truth by 100%. Ian Dunn, uh, one of the other voices in the game, um, he said, let me go on record to say I'm incensed by this. Whether you agree with Helen's views on trans issues or not, they are legitimate debate. They aren't. Mm -hmm. And she is entitled to hold and express them. She isn't. (laughs) Just absolutely abysmal. And worst of all, in an anti-fascist game, wiping away someone's voice in a software update, the digital equivalent of burning books. (laughs) I felt exactly the same way when they nerfed Bunks in Diablo 3. (laughs) But, oh. And isn't it, it's made by Ubisoft, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, an anti-fascist game made by that gang of fucking monsters. Next we have, uh, (laughs) funny discovery, we all took up different hobbies we tried different things in lockdown i mean Mm. i didn't you you people presumably did i didn't i did exactly the same thing as i would do if there was no lockdown at all i seem to be made for sitting in and playing computer games um (laughs) see you missed out uh, like i'm making gunpla i'm tattooing myself (laughs) yeah none of that just the same i'm just going to ease straight back into this life um but we all tried different things somebody might have tried writing a novel or yeah as you say making models or or, or trying a hobby that maybe they didn't have the focus to do before um james bloodworth started a dating podcast yeah he did see i was talking Um, to a a friend of mine about every single straight man like cis het man who has mm -hmm. a dating podcast Mm mm-hmm you know, I'm just saying, it sets off alarms. How dare you? How dare you suggest that podcast episodes like Is Clumsy Flirting a Crime in the Age of Me Too? <laughs> and from no fact to warnings about sexualization and objectification, are we living through a new moral panic about pornography? <laughs> so his first episode was about... Uh, uh, Dating online and how it's different from dating in real life. With this description, in 2017, 39% of heterosexual couples reported meeting their partner online, compared to 22% in 2009. Yet people are pre-selecting for things online, for factors such as height, that they wouldn't worry about in real life. Did you expect something else to be there? No, just height. Uh, (laughs) Pre-selecting for things online that they wouldn't worry about in real life, where chemistry, vibe and compatibility (laughs) are more important. Blood first vibe. I don't think I'm not like I'm not. I I haven't met him in person, but I imagine his vibe probably isn't enough to get over how tiny he is. Okay, next we have um, 
Oh boy. Jess Phillips's leadership campaign. I told uh-huh. you it was coming. Jess Phillips. She hasn't been very visible this year. Uh, she lost the leadership campaign, campaign quite badly, um, but it was fucking hilarious. Uh, she started off the year saying, Happy New Year, everyone. I've woken up with an absolute cob on about the people who get to make decisions about our lives. 2020 starts with fire in my belly, and I promise that won't change. Hashtag how bloody dare they. Who are you, who are you talking to, Jess? Maybe some policy or some politics no okay all right fine no that's not your thing um she was interviewed by midlands today during the uh leadership election uh and she said the following baffling baffling paragraph a jess phillips labor party wouldn't be just jess phillips one woman one mission like sort of you know die hard I wouldn't be doing it on my own. There's always conflict. Conflict is not the right word. There's always challenge within the Labour Party. If you can't face challenge, you can't listen to challenge. That's not very good leadership. If if your response to challenge is to assume bad faith rather than listen to the substantive, so a Jess Phillips Labour Party would listen to what members are saying and not just what members are saying, the country. The simple fact is that the main aim of Jess Phillips Labour Party would be to win an election so that it can do the changing that it wants to do. And it's going to not just be about not just listening to the country, but also talking to the country in a language that the country can hear. And twirling, going to become... twirling towards victory. <laughs> we are going to become irrelevant in the Labour Party in the next four years. We've spent the last week in the media and on Twitter talking about whether Big Ben will bong. We fell down a rabbit hole to Boris Johnson's creation. Really important things they're discussing. We have got to fight this war that we have in front of us with personality, with heart, with something that can reach people. I can't believe she didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the campaign didn't go well. She polled very, very low percentages. Um, she attributed this to her acting statesmanlike, which she promised to stop, and uh, she concedes that she stopped being real in hustings. <laughs> they thought she was too. That she thought they thought she was too much of a successful politician. She had the uh, she had the the celeb endorsements in hand. Uh, yeah. Caitlin Moran said, "There's until five p.m. on Monday to join or rejoin the Labour Party and vote for a new leader." I've rejoined to vote for Jess Phillips. She talks like I feel. Politics <laughs> should sound clear, passionate, sensible, funny when it helps. Uh... <laughs> um, Jess had. Uh, can you believe that Jess Phillips had a god complex while she was doing this <laughs> Labour leadership thing? Not at all. She said on LBC on the 13th of January, a woman cried when she saw me the other day as though I was the Beatles or take that. <laughs> no. Just, she was walking down the street and a woman burst into tears at the mere sight of her and she assumed that was for a good reason. She also said, the thing that differentiates me from many of them is that I am able to cut through to the public. To actually be able to engender in people that you're on their side is magical in politics. If there's one thing I definitely can do is I can engender trust and connection in people within literally a matter of seconds. (laughs) Again, I can't believe she didn't win. I reckon halfway through the leadership campaign... um, some whoever the fuck is backing her in the media or in a think tank or something dropped out yeah like just said yeah, no definitely. no more corbyn's gone we'll get starmer back in it's fine we don't need jess phillips mm-hmm. because it's baffling there's absolutely nothing about yeah. what she about her like comes across in these things you know oh. next we have oh yeah this is a good one uh i call this iranian no more heroes um, so after the assassination of uh, Qasim al-Soleimani uh, in January, um, 
An Iranian cleric, Shahab Muradi, made, the co- made a comment in a live TV interview on Iran's IRIB Ofog channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, in your opinion, if anyone wants to take their revenge on the assassination of Soleimani and intends to do it proportionately, that we take one of theirs now that they've got one of ours, who should we consider to take out in the context of America? Are we supposed to take out Spider-Man and SpongeBob? They don't have any heroes. <laughs> we have a country in front of us with a large population and a large landmass that doesn't have any heroes. All of their heroes are cartoon characters. They're all fictional. Oh, fuck, that's good. That's, that is good. That's a good point. Um, as a postscript, uh, somebody saying the Iranian culture is con- is second to none. A shame that dirty animals like you have the power to another Iranian uh, uh, minister. Yeah. The Iranian minister replies, you're just too dim-witted and too racist to understand two and a half thousand years of civilization. I hope you get deployed to one of America's occupation bases here and lose your limbs defending an oil infrastructure, you child of seven generations of bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that child of seven generations of bastard is pretty good. It's so fucking good. So good. But, like, obviously that kind of petered out, I guess, with mm. uh, with coronavirus when the CIA infected Iran with a, high, a <laughs> higher dose of coronavirus than anywhere else in the world. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, man, that was awesome. Um, all right, we have... Uh, oh, the anti-gay Hungarian politician who resigned after being caught by police fleeing a 25-man orgy through a window. Yosef Siaja, Siaja, sorry if I can't pronounce that correctly, a a senior member of the Fidesz party who had previously boasted of rewriting the um, Hungarian constitution to define marriage as heterosexual as a heterosexual institution, Um, was one of about 20 people, mainly men and including at least two EU diplomats, who attended a party near the Grand Place in Brussels. Police sources said the man's hands were bloody. Um, It is possible that he may have been injured while fleeing. Narcotics were found in his backpack. Uh, The man in question... Was he was he clothed when he fled? Because I, 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 it's a better idea if he's got his hands are bloody from fleeing. He's got he's completely naked except maybe for socks. He's got a backpack full of drugs. Yeah, that would be cool actually. It's that thing of socks. Yeah, socks make a man look more naked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the guy said later after resigning as an MEP, I did not use drugs. I offered to the police to take an instant test, but they did not do it. <laughs> police never able to take those instant drug tests when they stop you. Um, Police said an ecstasy pill was found. It's not mine. I don't know who placed it and how. I made a statement to the police about this. It could have been anyone. There were so many guys in there. It was all hands. <laughs> there were so many degrees in this steamy orgy in Brussels. That is a hot way to live, though. Mm-hmm. That is a hot way to live. Imagine getting elected as an MEP and, like, everything that Eurosceptics say about it is true. Like, it's a <laughs> proper gravy train. And all you have time to do is go to, like, it's really cold outside, but all the bars are really warm and they've got great beer. <laughs> and you're just upstairs <laughs> hanging and banging. <laughs> what a great life. <laughs> uh, finally, the funniest take of this year. Donald Trump, RIP, mm-hmm. on the 16th of January. I just got impeached for making a perfect phone call. <laughs> a perfect phone call. It's so good. It just sums up everything about the man, yeah. really. Perfection all around. Hmm. Um, okay, so. Okay. What was this year's funniest moment? See, I, I think, like, Cleaner Gate was very funny. 
was very funny. But the Jess Phillips one, it was like a football in the groin, and then she fell down the steps mm. and like stood on a bunch of rakes the thing and is, then got pied. She, she if if she was standing on a platform of like charisma and personality, let's mm. just say that were true. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to go about it that way. Like Kia Starmer said, just just said the same thing, like said those things about keeping those 10 pledges and yeah. he got elected. Yeah. You know, part of that thing was about getting, getting the look of a centrist, but also getting the language. And her language is wild. I've yeah. no idea what she's talking about. Mm. She could be talking about full Sovietization of the economy, mm-hmm. or she could be talking about the fact that we're going to sell everything to Singapore. Yeah. You would never know. And it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible that she genuinely didn't think that she had to do anything about that. Well, yeah, because she's been you know? blown up and hyperinflated for the entire time that Corbyn was in charge. By like, she thought that she was on, she was being invited onto all these news programs and onto the radio because she's so brilliant. But she was, it was just because she would be willing to complain about Corbyn all the time, and so, <laughs> and she believed her own her own bullshit. She got high yeah. off her own farts and then ran a leadership campaign. I on said farts. Um, I did laugh so much at that leather jacket thing, though. Oh god, that is a good story. I, and then he I, does it. It's like the thing is as well with that one is he could have just not told anyone. Yes, yes, that's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, that's the thing it shares with Cleanergate. You didn't have to tell anyone about this. Mm. This doesn't make you seem more human. It does exactly the opposite. It makes you sound alien. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, actually, no, I think Leather Jacket's um, win. You think Leather Jacket rather than Cleaner Gate? Yeah. Cleaner Gate is long, and it, it does go through a lot of different permutations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all right, well, we'll go with Leather Jacket. I'd say with an honourable venture for Cleaner Gate, because uh, yeah. everybody in it's so fucking dreadful. Yeah. So that's it. Our 2020 We Don't Talk About the Weather Awards are done, finished. We are never allowed to mention them ever again. Yeah. I can finally get all that space back on my phone with all these screenshots. <laughs> um, it's not quite the end of award season, though. We will be having a very special song contest yep, uh, coming up after these, after these episodes are released. So we've got more, con- more 2020 content. Um, and, yeah, just uh, from us to everybody everybody's really always really nice on twitter and we get really nice dms um and you know like obviously some talking about like how often we release and things like that (laughs) like we we try and do every week but honestly like some of the bigger episodes they do take they do take longer um but yeah always like thanks everyone for listening and it's it's always like it's so so much of a pleasure to hear about it and yeah Yeah. it's it's great yeah thanks thanks bye about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my dick.